3: Thank you, Hannah. Thank you all so much for coming. It's my absolute delight to be here with these speakers today. I'll introduce them in a moment, but first, just to set the scene, because we're talking today about women and power, and I'm sure many of you will not need a reason as to why we need a debate on that subject. But we're having it now, and the reason we're having it at this particular moment in history is that, as many of you know, last year, the New York Times ran a story that began by talking about how Ashley Judd went to have breakfast with the Hollywood producer named Harvey Weinstein. And so began what's now become known as the Me Too movement. Powerful men in the media, the arts, business, and film have been toppled and humbled. And women in the media, at organizations like the BBC, have been launching vocal campaigns about pay equality. What has actually changed? We're going to be asking that question in three parts, if you like. First of all, we're going to be looking at the present and what the Me Too movement means right now and how it's interpreted by my panellists here on the stage. We're going to go back in history. And when I say back in history, I mean back, way back. We're talking the millennia-old history of misogyny and silencing women. And then in the third part of our conversation, we're going to be looking at... The challenges that persist for women and how we can envision a different future. So, all light topics should be quite easy to tackle in an hour and a half. Let me introduce our speakers. So when I said we're going way back, it can only be because we have with us Mary Beard, professor of classics at Newnham College, Cambridge, at Newnham College, Cambridge, and a classic editor of the TLS. Her books include the best-selling SPQR, A History of Ancient Rome, and the recent number one bestseller, Women in Power: A Manifesto. Which has been described in glowing terms as a modern feminist, classic, no less. And she has, as I'm sure you all know as well, presented several television documentaries about the ancient world, and she was a presenter on the recent landmark BBC series Civilization. So thank you for joining us, Mary. On my far left, we have Miriam Gonzalez. Miriam is co-chair of the law firm Deschert LLP's International Trade and Government Regulation Practice, where she advises on Brexit and EU trade law policy, so she obviously had lots of time to take out of her agenda to be with us this evening. I know her best as the founder and chair of Inspiring Girls, which is an incredible charity that's dedicated to raising the aspirations of young girls around the world by connecting them with female role models. And she's also uh, a woman that I always enjoy saying has a husband, and her husband we can define by her career tonight, and that's the uh, former Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg. So thank you very much for joining us. Yeah. Last but by no means least, we have the author, commentator, and activist Laurie Penny. Laurie is one of the most productive women in the media, and I say that from a position of informed authority. She's a contributing editor to The New Statesman, and she's also written for The Guardian, Time Magazine, BuzzFeed, The New York Times, and Vice. She's written five books. Seven seven books. (laughs) In the time that most of us have written one. And Bitch Doctrine, Essays for Dissenting Adults, um, was published last year, but the second... Uh, second edition has just come out and I'm reading it and I highly recommend it. So please welcome Laurie Penny. (laughs) So I mentioned the New York Times story about Ashley Judd and Harvey Weinstein and the events that followed. I want to start by asking each of my panelists, what went through your mind when you first heard
4: those revelations last year? Mary, conflicting things really I mean uh, it certainly wasn't surprise you know you didn't say oh my goodness me couldn't believe that could I uh-huh. um, but then you thought okay you know you do the story about you know what Hollywood stands for and the sexist structures of Hollywood and you think "Ah, oh, we knew that already didn't we or didn't we assume that and then you thought I mean I felt guilt really Because I think you then said, well, if I did know that already, if I didn't think I knew that already, didn't I ever think to say, you know, what's going on there? No, I'd just, I'd shut up like everybody else. So, um, no surprise, slight self-satisfaction about knowledge, followed by an uncomfortable sense that maybe I ought to have spoken out.
3: Okay, thanks, Mary. Laurie?
2: Um, well, first, I just wanted to say it's a huge, huge honour to be here with all of you guys, and thank you to Intelligence Squares for having me. But um, I think uh, when I first heard uh, the Harvey Weinstein story, I thought, "Who? Um, <laughs> come on!" Like, I mean, I, I, like, I don't, I don't know who producers are. I think I'm not film journalist. And then I, um, and then I thought, "Oh, here we go again," because like. There is this idea that this is the first powerful man who has been, you know, publicly brought down in some way, or people have tried to bring him down by um, by exposing, you know, we have to say allegedly uh, past past crimes. Um, but this has been a running theme of, you know, the work I've done in activism in within feminism on the left, you know, again and again and again. And men are accused of things, and then there is a backlash, and the women involved is silenced, and it tears apart social movements. And I didn't know, and I think none of us knew, knew that this would be the watershed moment. And it's very interesting that this is this is how it's happened. And
5: and I, I'd love to hear people's theories as to why.
3: Mm, Thanks, sorry,
5: Miriam. Well, many many emotions really. I think first of all, disgust. No, is when when the story comes up, and you think, you know. Of course, you are not surprised at the same, but 70 women in relation to him, really? I mean, there was something in me thinking, ah, this is absolutely disgusting. And then if I'm honest, there was a point that I felt a little bit of an exclusion. That that though I have always had it in my mind that some of this keeps going on, I have always seen at a personal level myself, if you had asked me personally, I think that I have always defined myself much more of a me-neither woman than a me-too woman. And, uh, you know, at some point it's like, am I part of this or, or not? And then the next step for me was confusion and surprise because talking about it, I have come to realize that I have a little box in my brain somewhere there where I have hidden things that have happened at some points, um, things that annoyed me, um, never on that side, always on the mean either side, but things that annoyed me, that that I locked in there, just so that I don't have to think about it. And I think it's all, not only it's fantastic that women are talking about it, but it's all very healthy that we all think about it, because we hide it. And why did you hide those, or bury those experiences or those thoughts when you because have Because we normalize it. It's something that I go on uh, in the Inspiring Girls uh, campaign. I think that we normalize sexism. And part of that normalization of sexism is as, you know, we get women of my generation, precisely. I have just been 50, so, um, uh, you know, <laughs> quite a few years there. I think that things that upset us, in order to deal with it, we just... We make it small, we lock it there, and we say, well, we go on. This is absolutely fine. It is not fine, because it has a massive effect on the next generation.
3: And, Laurie, this goes back to your point about the fact that there is nothing new in this, but what's new is that it's, it's stuck, that it's a moment of traction. And I want to ask you, as someone who's been an activist on the left all of your adult life, and probably before, well, before that, what, what is the difference that you perceive in the narrative now? And also, can you address this question of whether this is... This is about... It started about women in Hollywood.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: This is an ongoing debate about whether this is a movement for privileged women. Is it really helping with grassroots issues about domestic violence in the home, about uh, women in immigration detention? Is, has it become a
2: broader part of the feminist activist scene? Well, I would hope so. Um... I am very suspicious, not that, look, feminism has a problem, the feminist movement as a whole has a problem with privilege, a problem with race, and a problem, All kind, as most political movements do, right? Um, and those are things that I have found uh, feminist activists eventually quite good at cleaning house on, you know, quite good at, you know, at collecting people and saying, and I am I am very suspicious when when I hear powerful white men come to me and say, well, isn't this a bit privileged? You know, isn't this a bit, isn't feminism a bit too privileged right now? And I'm like, no, I'm not hearing that from, you know, there's, there are only certain people I will, you know, I will tolerate that from. Um, there is a use, I think, in this coming from, not just from privileged women, but from Hollywood. Because these are people who we've, we've all seen, I mean, even if we don't know who producers are, like, we've all seen on our screens, in stories, we've seen them as women who have been given other people's lines to say, women who have often literally been cast as victims. Um, in you look at Rose McGowan, who um, we spoke to on Front Row the other day, and she is somebody who has literally been cast as somebody who is deserving of sexual violence in film after film, and then to have these people turn around and say it happened to us, well, you start thinking: well, if it happened to them, it can happen to anyone. Maybe this deal, maybe even at the top of the pile of privilege, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it's not a good deal deal in the first place. You know, the deals you're meant to make with patriarchy and I think there has been and it has served as a point of opening to discuss other issues within feminism to discuss class to discuss race and all of the problematic things that have come up I have found people open to discussing them Um, but I mean maybe that's me being Pollyanna but that's not often what I'm accused of so
3: (laughs) Mary you wanted to come in well well,
4: uh, I'd like to think that when Laurie said this was a watershed moment that she was right. And I I hope that Me Too um, moves from being hashtag Me Too to being change, because hashtags are easy and change is harder. And And So if I was going to predict kind of 20 years hence, and one version of that prediction would go, this was the moment when suddenly you know, eyes opened and we thought, no, you know, stop it. Just stop it, guys, you know. The other part of me thinks that if, and it really goes back to what I said, I suppose, about being unsurprised about the stories that came out, Was that if what you think is that this is about, you know, ultimately what's causing this is not nasty men, some of them are and some of them may not be. What's causing this is the structures of gender power in Hollywood and elsewhere. Then the logic for me is you only are going to solve the problem if you really get to grips with the structures of power. So that, you know, how many, something like 3% of Hollywood directors are female, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I, I'm torn between thinking that actually vocalising can sometimes really change things. And on the other hand, more gloomily thinking, that this is a kind of... You know, there's a certain feel-good epiphenomenon here, but it's still going to be the guys in power. They're still going to be the ones who call the shots. You know, not necessarily in Hollywood, but in, um, you know, you can name any institution. And that that is, if you really want to stop the Harvey's of this world, that's what you've got to change, and a hashtag doesn't do that.
3: Well, we're going to talk more about structural questions and the future of uh, the patriarchy of misogyny, but... I want to ask you about the generational divide that seems to have opened up, just coming back to the confines of the Me Too movement, because it's undeniably there. And you know, Who can forget Jermaine Greer's yeah. comments on this? And there have been a number of women of, dare I say it, your generation, Mary.
4: Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I can't 63 help. in a bit, you know, proud, okay? And proud, exactly. That's why I, you know, let's celeb-
3: celebrate here, you your know? Long accomplishments. <laughs> um, that I, and I've experienced it myself this point of heat where women say, well, we've all had our bump pinched, just get on with it.
4: <laughs> yeah, well, I have had my bump pinched <laughs> and worse. Um, I, I think I, I'm, I'm not certain that that's what is, the, that that's the root of the generational divide. I mean, I think that what it's very easy to forget, that I, I was kind of... You know, I was being my radical lorry, you know, in the late 60s and through the 70s. And our campaigns were just so utterly different then. I mean, we did, you know, we did think that the age of consent was something that we wanted to abolish. No, because we actually sat there and said, look, you know, here I am, and you adults are stopping me have a sex life. You know, and we didn't... The the idea of exploitation of kids, as now seems absolutely natural for us to think about, that did not cross our minds. And the idea that, um, that somehow what you were fighting was the rules that stopped you sleeping with who you wanted to, leaving aside the power dimensions you thought you thought that what you were what you were doing was batting at the old god and that the really to, to demolish the old god meant you know I'm gonna fuck who I want to and and that was that was what you know, it's, and, I, and I you know now of course I you know I can see all the things that in saying that we didn't see you know, in, in hindsight. So, but I, I still think a, a lot of us, it's not about... I mean, I think people say, I never mind having my bum pinched by the photocopier. I think they're talking tosh. But um, I think w- w- people in my generation have done a vault fast or are being asked to do a vault fast. Mm-hmm. I think rightly probably. So are you saying that Mm. they're still stuck on this idea
3: of kind of personal agency if you can be allowed to choose who you sleep with and therefore if you decide to to, uh, go to an audition wearing your underwear
4: I don't that is where I'm not endorsing that that perspective just to be clear um, but I think that uh, I don't actually think that we thought that through Mm. You know, I think we didn't think it through but I think that deep ingrained in me is that the conservative right patriarchy actually wants to stop me sleeping with who I want to. And and I'm sure that goes for Germaine, you know, who says some extremely stupid things. Um, (laughs) Really extremely stupid things. Uh, But sometimes, you know, I can't... You know, The Female Unit was a changing kind of book for me. And... I can't throw Jermaine over entirely. I can't, uh, and I think buried in all that complete crass stupidity, you know, in order to get on the front page of every sorting newspaper, there are some actual grains of intelligent torment. Mm. <laughs> I won't tell you what they are now because it will drive Laurie mad. But I can uh, feel—I i can, feel, I can, I can feel, feel Laurie desperate. But, to but, let's I, but I think it is—it there is the, the generational thing is that we feel that. We, you know, the, the terrain of battle has changed.
2: Mm. No? Laurie, all right. So um, this <laughs> dichotomy between—I um, I want to challenge you on the dichotomy between you know the fight against sexual oppression and the fight against sexual repression, which is very much you know kind of what Germaine Greer was about with the female eunuch, and it was a hugely—it was a—I was kind of a, I don't if people like I have a very specific history with feminist activism and that like. I was, I actually was like a pink-haired feminist before it was cool, in a weird way. Like, back in the 90s when nobody was a feminist. Like, you know, well, <laughs> it, that's, what was <laughs> that's what I was told. That's what I was told. And we didn't have the internet in the same way. So I, I only knew one other feminist and I was told that feminism was over. And then I discovered Gemma Greer and it was like, you know, I was really into it in the way that you're into things when you're 14, you know, and you're never quite in the same way again. But I think the... Sexual liberation is exactly what movements like Me Too are about and the idea that's being handed down to us, not by an older generation of feminists, but, you know, there are certain people who've been kind of Julia Hartley Brewer, who have been sort of, like... I didn't say anything, but who have been kind of recruited to say, oh, these young people, they're so prudish. You know, they don't... You know, no wonder nobody's shagging anymore. But, no, that's absolutely what it's about. Sexual. Are, they st- are they still? Yes. They well, I hope so. <laughs> I was
3: warned that we would need to stay focused, but I, did we know, I, I focused. didn't... We are focused! go. This, this is what that, it's about!
2: Yeah, like... Um, you cannot have sexual liberation without addressing sexual violence. And you cannot talk honestly about consent without talking about sexual liberation. And I think this idea that it's a fight between people who are anti-sex and pro-sex is just not... And the idea that if you, if you are pro-sexual liberation... This is not what Mary is saying no, at no, all, no. I know. Like, if you are pro-sexual liberation, then you somehow have to just, like be pro-being grabbed whenever you want to. That's not liberation for me. That is repression. It's exploitation and repression. But with the the generation gap thing, I think there is is a divide in some ways between what is often known as, you know, the second wave generation of feminists and, you know, and the new guard. And I think in some ways we don't pay enough we don't give enough respect to people, to struggles that have gone on before. I think that's true. But also, I think there is a sense, especially among women who have not, like, you know, spent their whole lives immersed in this sort of activism, that, you know, maybe yeah, young people are just asking for too much. You know, God, you know, can't they put up with anything? You know, we, we have to be strong enough to deal with all this, so why aren't they? And the answer is, of course, like, why should we be? Why should anyone be? Like, I'm totally strong enough to deal with someone grabbing me. I just don't... I can't be bothered. I can't be bothered to negotiate all of that bullshit. But it I sounds have like sounds to do.
3: It sounds like you're quite forgiving of Jermaine Greer in the context of her, what she's contributed to feminism and to your feminism.
2: I wouldn't say... For, I, look, I'm not angry. I'm disappointed. Um,
3: oh, right. <laughs> we will come back to you, Laurie. But first, we're going to take a little meander through the millennia. And Mary to ask you about your book, Women in Power, which I have to say I found profound because it revealed to me certain tropes and prejudices that I lived with whose roots I had no idea of. And to realize that so many things that seem part of kind of contemporary trolling are thousands of years yeah, old, yeah. it was really fascinating. Yeah. Tell us about the book,
4: how it came about. And uh, what what the main argument is... Well, there's lots of... You you can tell lots of different stories about how you wrote a book. And, you know, the truth is that the two main chapters of the book were two lectures that I did for the London Review of Books um, at the British Museum. And, you know, in the way that anybody who has been asked to give a lecture and is a procrastinator knows, um, I didn't know what to say. You know, I said, yeah, I'll do a lecture for you. And they were pressing me. And then the editor rings up and says, look, you know, you could tell it's really urgent because she rang. She didn't email, <laughs> no, right? No, no. Um, uh, and I said, I, don't, I just don't know what to say. So she said it for the first one and she did the same for the second one. Talk about the voice of women. Talk about women's voices. So what I found myself doing in, in both the, the chapters and the original lectures that um, add up to the book was thinking about the really, really long history of the way that women are shut up and the way that women's power is removed from them. And I'll just give you two very quick examples. The, the first example is, um, goes right back to the beginning of Western literature, and it is Homer's Odyssey, you know, 8th century BC we're right at the wellsprings of what we might call western culture and in the first book of Homer's Odyssey the mother of this weedy teenager Telemachus is shut up by her son. Penelope comes downstairs, she's in the palace of Ithaca, she's waiting for Odysseus, her husband, to get back home from the Trojan War. She hears a boring old bard singing about um, what a terrible time the Greek heroes are having, and she says, please can you play a nicer tune? Perfectly reasonable request. And Telemachus says, shut up mother, speech is man's business, go back upstairs. And she does. And I'd read that... You know, I first read The Odyssey when I was about 16. And I'd read that for then, you know, 40 40 years. And I'd never spotted it, you know? I'd read it, but I'd never seen that it was about silencing women. And suddenly, you think, right, okay, let me think about my own experience of being silenced.
3: I I just want to introduce an image at this stage, which we have. Because speaking of politicians who've been attacked because of the sound of their voice... For anyone who's in any doubt about how conscious contemporary misogynists are of ancient
4: literature. Here is uh, Donald Trump with the head of Hillary Clinton. Um, I was very, very conscious, tipped off by a friend of mine in the States who said, look at the imagery with which Clinton was attacked by the Trump supporters. And she said it goes back to the old myth of Perseus, the Greek hero who decapitates the vicious, snaky-locked monster, female Medusa, who, by her very look, will turn anyone to stone. So I, went, I put Medusa, Perseus, Trump, Clinton into Google Images, and suddenly, <laughs> there was hundreds of images of the decapitation of Clinton by our Perseus-type hero. And what I thought was very striking about it was that, you know, if you go into the darker recesses of the web, you can find pretty nasty images, you know, of, of attacking Obama. This was not. This was kind of domestic. You could get this on T-shirts, on mouse mats, on mugs, on tote bags. You know, you could fill the domestic space of your house with the image of decapitation. And I just thought, and people are batting an eyelid at this? And interestingly, when Kathy Griffin did her sketch on American television, in which... I thought extremely nasty and untasteless in which she held up the decapitated head of Trump she was sacked Uh, hundreds and thousands of Americans you know are enjoying this on their coffee mug (laughs) why is that? and again it fits into this kind of the idea and in some ways it's deeply depressing and in other ways it's kind of it really helps to kind of see that these tropes, the tropes by which we write off women, the way we talk about them, the way we we remove their power from... They're not, you know, they're not things that were even invented in the last century. They are things which have been uh, central to Western culture as far back as we can see it. I don't mean by that that I think they are natural, but I mean they're very, very deeply ingrained, culturally learned tropes which silence women and, for good measure, cut their heads off. Is this
3: insight useful to see a kind of consistency, or did you find that our contemporary narrative is a direct descendant of this Roman-Greek
4: mythology and literature? I mean, we're not simply the descendants, thank heavens, of Greece and Rome. You know, you know, you know, culture's got a bit more diverse, and you know, there are other influences. We're not kind of poor little pawns of the Greeks and Romans, but I, I think you can trace um, the way that those images have been presented to us. And naturalized for us. I think that it's somehow that it's about the way and, and in a way this comes back to the kind of oh you know bottom pinch by the photocopier the way we have learned to think of this as a kind of natural state of affairs.
3: Well, it reminded me of when I first went into TV broadcasting where the very friendly advice I was given by a helpful male boss was, you might want to try lowering the pitch of your voice. We find that viewers prefer it. <laughs> so, Miriam, do you
5: recognise the I, narratives that Mary's describing in the book? I do, and that is um, a lot at the core of what we are trying to fight against with, with inspiring uh, girls, precisely to try to tackle that at a very early age, and, and um, incidentally, what we find in the campaign, we are in seven eight today because we have opened in Colombia as well, but no matter the country, no matter the background, no matter whether it's a school that is doing well or not, what we find everywhere is that around the age of 12, 13, there is an issue of lack of self-confidence. It is at that age that girls start thinking, oh, perhaps this job is not for me, or perhaps this subject is not really for girls, this sport may not be. And it's like, you know, it trickles down there in their mind. And I'm absolutely convinced that that is what later on leads to women thinking that your boss, uh, assuming that he can sleep with you, is normal, as some have said, or that, uh, for example, you don't need to ask for a higher salary because, you know, you're a woman, or what is something that installs itself there in the back of your mind, that if we were able to kill it, you know, by the roots <laughs> early on, we would all be in a, in a much um, better position. I, I think I, it's not that I disagree, but I see it slightly differently, because I think that there has been a change... Uh, definitely in the last few years, in the sense that we don't think that it is natural or okay that some of these things happen to women. I think that it has moved, the, the, the arrow has moved a little bit there, and that we actually know it is not okay. But we think, because it's not too bad, it's not as bad as it was whenever you couldn't vote or whenever you didn't have equal pay or whatever. It's kind of, OK, let's live with it. And I think that it's that bit that we need to fight against now. The, it is not OK. It's just not good enough to say, well, in our country, we have so many rights. We don't have it on an equal basis. to men. And that's what I want. I just want equal rights. It's, you know, it's not so difficult. Laurie, you
3: wrote that... Um you wish you'd been a restaurant critic. Restaurant critics get free meals, you get death threats. Yeah,
5: I get free death threats. Actually,
2: I kind of, like, travel journalist is right up there. You know, travel, but... But it yeah, is, I it's, guess a, it's part of what you do that you are regularly faced with horrific... Yes, absolutely, and, and it shouldn't be. And it is not just from anonymous trolls on the internet. That's a cop-out. It's from, you know, I have been harassed from by journalists from, you know, all kinds of well-known publications. And I've had... like I, I went through, I wrote a big piece about it lately, and I found, you know male journalists I thought I admired writing, like, just disgusting, patronizing stuff about me. When I was 23 years old, you know, this guy was, you know, so much older and just, like, wrote a whole column about, like, how how rubbish I was. And, like, the attacks, the attacks have been relentless and the sil- and the attempts to silence and, you know, lucky. And, and the thing is, you, you, why are they doing this? Because... Because there's a threat when women are actually allowed to speak
5: and when they are allowed to speak to each other, look what happens. But it's only men? Is it only men out of, out of curiosity? Because in my case, uh, some of the biggest sexist comments and attacks have come from women. Some of them, yeah. yeah. And I, I think that we are moving into a situation where this is much more about men and women who share one model of society and men and women who share a different model. That this is just not so much different genders, one against the
2: other. Uh, let me bring Marion. Can, can
3: I th- answer that briefly? Yeah, all right, let Laurie just
2: say um, Internalised patriarchy is a thing, right? And I'm, I'm sick, I know this is not what you're saying, but I'm sick of somebody pointing and saying, look, just because one woman is also being no, no, a dickhead. No, 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 many. no I, know <laughs> many. I know that's not what you're saying, but look, I... I will fight sexism wherever it appears. Some women are extremely sexist. That doesn't mean that the problem isn't gender and sexism. And that doesn't mean that those women do not eventually benefit. You know, I don't... I take the point of view, I don't need... Necess- it would be nice if those women were on board now, but I will still continue to fight for their rights, and I hope other people will too. But and it's eventually- not only that angle,
5: if I may. There are lots of men who don't agree with those views. And I think that part of the liberation of the Me Too, of making this a a big issue to discuss in society, and I perfectly buy that we have, you know, I agree completely on that. We have centuries and centuries that we need to change, right? But it's just wonderful to see how men have joined in.
3: Um, I know there is so much more we could keep discussing on this, but I do want to move it forward because we're running out of time. And, And Mary, I want to really pin you down because one of the things I found most fascinating about women of power, and it relates to this question of structure was your assertion that we should change the way we think about power, that we think of power as an attribute or a noun, something you have, that perhaps we should think about it as a verb, to power, that if women are to be powerful in ways they were not allowed to be powerful in in the past, that we
4: would need to reframe our thinking
3: around power. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, there's a
4: simple logic there, um, which is to say, um, if, for all the reasons that I go through, I think, in the book, If women don't fit the structures of power as they're currently defined, one thing you might do is change the women, right? So that they fit. Maybe we should think of it differently from the other end and say, let's change the power, not the girls. Now, that's quite easy to say, you know? Um, uh, It's harder to deliver on with a kind of 10-point... Uh, action plan for how we're we going to change the structure of power in this, you know, in the world. But I, I mean, I think, you know, you I don't have to give us 10 points, but you I'll could give, you us, one. You could give well, us one or two. Um, I'm an academic, and I always think that just thinking things through is always important. Um, but I'm, I'm very conscious, just in my own university world, um, of the way actually ideas of a certain sense of male leadership has developed. So I get invited to courses frequently um, about how to be a leader. And I, I now write back when I get these invitations on my email saying, I will go to one of those when I can also go on a course about how to be a follower. Because leaders imply followers. And actually... Isn't that the dichotomy that we need to be breaking down? I think it's... You know, this is not about... I mean, I mean, just think of the word to wield. That's what we use with power. What do you do with power? You wield it, right? What else do you wield? You know, a sword and a phallus, it seems to me. What you wield <laughs> a phallus?
2: I, I've never wielded one, but, like... Either, in fact,
4: but like... Again, I feel that there, there are rich uh, hinterlands that could be explored here, but not right now. You know, so... You know, there's a kind of celebrity about it. There's a thrusting, penetrative... You know, let's just say we want to get some things done, actually. And we want to get some things done together. And um, maybe collaboration and taking different roles. That's why I did mention in the book, you know, when I was trying to think of some example, was Black Lives Matter was then, it still seems to me largely true, it was an example of a movement in which the protagonists were both super effective in changing the political landscape and did not become celebrities. Now, of course it's possible to say they didn't become celebrities because they were three black women, right? And so they remained anonymous. But you can turn that and you can say, look, actually, one of the most powerful changes on the scene of contemporary US politics has been a movement in which most people could not name the leaders. And Um, you see that not as a failure to become symbols of power but
3: as a way of a reinvention of power as something that that doesn't involve celebrity or attention. Um,
4: Or at least I'm going to try to see it that way right. I'm going to try to see it not as these are women that, if it had been three white men doing this, would have been all over every television screen, and, uh, but actually saying it is possible to make changes without that model of thrusting maleness, white maleness. Laurie,
3: just to play devil's advocate to, to what Mary's saying. Is that not giving up? Isn't that saying we, you know, as women, we can't we can't do this, so we have to reimagine? Why can't women inhabit the power that already exists? And and is it okay to because. to abandon that?
2: Well, the power that already exists was built by men for men. And, you know, as long as that's the only model we have of power, women are always going to lose whether or not they're inside or outside that power. It's pretty, I don't know, it's pretty simple. I'm not very attached to the current way we conceptualize either politics or economics. I think we have to problematize those hierarchies as well. It's, yeah, we think about power, I think, as something women have or are supposed to have individually, and this is where i um i like it's really hard to talk about problems within contemporary feminism without having people reframe it as, oh, look, it's girls shouting at each other. Because actually, this, look, a bunch of men said what, exactly what Jermaine Greer said. Far worse, right? And they've been saying it for centuries. But as soon as Jermaine Greer says it, it's like, oh, women fight each other. Go on. And it's not... The, the real enemy is outside the feminist movement. But there is a certain limit to a feminism which only, is only concerned with empowering individual women. And if there's one thing that I've, I've had solidified for me by the Me Too movement and personal experiences I've had with that... It's that we build power together. It's not, like, as Mary said, it's not just about leaders, it's about structures and structures coming up from below. And it is about solidarity, which is an unfashionable word. But solidarity being the fact that you don't, you don't even have to like each other. And that was a great revelation to me. You don't have to like other women who you're hanging out with in order to have their back. You know, you have their back first. And you believe them until, until you heard it differently. Yeah.
4: And I, I think that in some ways, there are some really simple points here, you know, because what I think m- most women want is actually what they don 't currently have, which is to be taken seriously they want you know i, I don 't expect people to agree with me necessarily, I expect to have arguments, I could go on with Laurie disagreeing you know for hours, but i I what I feel I don't have, I and mean, you, know, you might say, you know, it looks as if I've got this in spades. I don't think that my words are taken as seriously as a, a male coeval. I simply yeah. don't think that. I,
5: I do think that the structures of power are changing. I don't think it has anything to do with the gender debate. I think it has to do with technology, frankly, and the fact that now we can connect with each other and therefore that change is completely the dynamic as to how you can affect change if you want to see leadership in that way. I, the, the, the problem I have with that premise of you either change the power or you change the women is that it assumes that there is such thing as the women. That we share something. I, I have real problems accepting that. Because I think that we are all different. You know, that, that normally that debate leads on to we are um, better at negotiating, we tend to look for consensus, um, uh, we are um, more patient, um, we are more diplomatic. Now, I have been a negotiator in, in the past, so I'm probably not a good example of that. But, you know, even I prefer people do what I say rather than having to negotiate. <laughs> I don't think that's... Anybody would say that I am diplomatic. Um, And the other thing that I have is that I'm really impatient. So yes, perhaps all these structures of power need to change. But while they are changing, I really want women not only to get more power, but also to show it, and to show it to the girls. And for me, the biggest change in the last few years that have happened with women in power is that for many years we were getting women in power who were the very best women the top of the crop, you know, they had it all. With few exceptions, of course, but most of them, it was amazing when they made it there because it was like going through a Ginkana. Finally, we are seeing mediocre women in power. And there are quite a few in the government here. Yes. Just quickly. We're little...
2: talking about, like... <laughs> we're talking about, should we change power or should we change women? Like... Maybe we could change men, like can we, like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, talking about what the trouble is and the thing that nobody is like, I think maybe we're stepping around is that there are some points at which giving, you know, it's not the problem, isn't isn't only that women have not enough power, it's that men have too much and we need to take some of that away, we do, sorry, like, and that's uncomfortable to hear, it's uncomfortable
4: to hear. But, I, last no, about. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that, you know, we, we're looking for a social and political revolution. And in the end, revolutions have losers as well as winners. There is no such thing as a revolution in which everybody wins. And so I'm afraid I'm with you, Laurie, on this, that, that actually this is in part about giving up yeah. power and t- oh, taking it away from the buggers, you know? <laughs> on that note... <laughs>
3: time for you to ask questions so the first lady I saw was this person here
0: hi thank you for the opportunity to ask the question I've um I'm a clinical psychologist I've spent the last nine months um almost exclusively working with senior executives in the city um mostly all men because they're very senior and behind closed doors (laughs) behind closed doors um, I can say without breaching any of um, any confidentiality that there is a crisis of masculinity in men of my generation, and I, like you, Miriam, at 50. And um, so my question is this. If we're asking men to give up power, and I think a lot of them, even the very privileged and successful, realise this paradigm doesn't work for them in terms of fulfilment, happiness, all of those things that people start to look for in midlife... Um, then what are we going to fill that? If they, if they let go, what are we filling it with? Because a vacuum needs to be filled. So have we thought through what this new paradigm is going to look like in sufficient detail for both women and men for this vacuum to be filled in a healthy way?
3: Thank you very much. Thank you. There was a gentleman there. Yeah.
5: Um, Hi, I'd um, I'd like to pick up on something that Laurie said at the very end, which was perhaps men need to change. And the question for the
0: panel is, um, how do you go about doing that? So, for example, Miriam, with your inspiring girls,
5: is it time to bring boys into the fold as well?
3: Thank you very much. Great questions. This question of a crisis of masculinity. And
2: and if we take power away from men and we create a void, what what do we fill it with? Well... uh, there's always a crisis in masculinity. I think the experience of masculinity is, is of crisis, is of, of deep loneliness and, and fear, and fear of other men. Um, and you know, I've been talking a lot to a lot of men over the past you know, year and, and through the Me Too thing, and, and that's what I'm hearing over and over again, is that how should, how should we be better men? How am I supposed to be a man? And what nobody is asking is, well, how am I supposed to be a person? I think maybe the question is not how you, forf- how you find fulfillment as a man, but what if your humanity was the, f- was the more important thing? The concept of masculinity that we have right now is toxic and, and should be junked, not only for the sake of women who have to cope with it, and you know, we're always asked, you know, what will we offer men? It's not about what we have to offer men, it's about how men can be fully human and live within themselves and learn to, care, to do that care work for themselves. And um, I think that starts by... There's this brilliant... There's this, this fantastic Gloria Steinem line, which is, um, you know, w- women have to learn to be the men we wanted to marry and learn how to husband themselves. And I think, like, that's something that the feminist movement in some ways has taught us, but I think there is a corollary whereby, you know, men need to learn how to kind of be their own wives. And oh. do, Don't you think so? I want to bring Miriam in. Because it may be unfair to uh,
3: senior executive men in the city to kind of have Trump as the model of... I mean, no one's going to question that masculinity is in crisis of Trump and what is it. Do the, I'm curious as to whether the other senior lawyers you work with who are men, whether you recognize this crisis of masculinity.
5: Well, I personally think that there is much more change than what we give credit for here in the type of discussions that we have amongst us. And uh, I think that I, for example, I'm sure that I have much more in common with pretty much every man who is here in this room than with any female voters of Trump or any female writers of the Daily Mail. I mean, the the divide in society (laughs) is very different now. And and of course, part of this involves a, a big discussion as to somebody will lose some of that power And at an individual level, that may feel painful at some points. It also involves having some discussions about things that we have left as taboos. And one of the big taboos is the society of care. We care for children, we care for elderly parents, we care for one another, somebody has to do that, we sort of hide it, some of that is going to feel painful, and it may have some repercussions, by the way, including on taxation, that we don't even want to touch so far. So I, I'm perfectly aware of all that, but I, for example, have never had as many conversations as to what you have to feed babies than with the male members of my team, and they are completely open, some of those young and men, to, to take Mary, responsibility Mary for coming, If I may answer on the inspiring girls, yes. because something that we have really noticed on so the inspiring girls debate... So this was the question, do, debate, do men need to change, should you include boys in exactly. the kind of training you do? Just what like. we have noticed there is that when we bring boys on board, on the kind of, you know, we normally have one woman and 28 girls or so. If we get boys there, which was our initial instinct, most of the questions come from boys. And it's completely shocking when you see it. If you remove the boys there, all the questions, of course, it it becomes... And also something that I'm completely shocked about all the time is that we continue getting questions. These are 12, 13 years old girls. In 2018, you still get questions about, can you really do that job and have a family? It's shocking, really.
4: But... That's where probably... And I've, for once, I've got a practical suggestion. You know, okay. um, <laughs> that, you know, it goes back a lot earlier, doesn't it? And it goes back to how we... And we're all implicated in this, certainly. I think I was. Um, in what we expect... How we train little boys to mm-hmm. be boys. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, and there's a lot of discussion about it. And I remember you know, vividly, I think, taking very much the wrong path, you know, and making sure that, you know, you know my daughter had a train she didn't want and the son had a Barbie doll, oh. you know, a fat <laughs> lot of good this ever did. <laughs> but when actually you go to any playground and you see, time and again, Boys being told not to cry, to be brave, to man up. Um, and the, the way that we treat those kids, when they're five or six... It's violent. It's you horrific. Know, you, can, you can see, you know, so by the time they're 12 or 13,
5: you're reaping the rewards of that. Yeah, absolutely. We, can, can I say a little bit? Yeah. We have, in, in Inspiring Girls here uh, in the UK, we did a parallel campaign with primary schools. And we brought panels of six people, you know, men and women, to six-year-old boys and girls. And we asked, what kind of job do you think that these people have? And you would be completely six years old, eh, that they can hardly explain to you properly the biological difference between men and women. Men, banker, doctor, boss. They say boss. <laughs> if this woman, teacher, nurse, young and pretty model, and fancy this, Party organizers. Why are we party organizers? (laughs) Wow. That's amazing. Okay,
3: we've got time for one more round of questions. Maybe two if we keep it short. So, uh, thank you. Okay, Um, I'm curious as to the panel's view um, as to um, some of the reasons why women haven't always been able to organize. I mean, I sort of have a theory which is around the fact that other people from other disadvantaged communities will often live together. So, you know, Jewish people fighting anti-Semitism will often live in Jewish communities, and LGBT people will often live in those, you know, they're the people they're living with. But women tend to live separately with their male and families and their children, and I'm wondering to what extent that um, has held us back, especially when you look at what's been happening with gay marriage in Ireland, and how I feel sometimes that that's leaping forward ahead of some of the women's issues. Not that it shouldn't, but that it is. And obviously with the internet, it's We've already said that that's changed things, but I'm curious as to the panel's view as to whether they think that that is one of the things that's held women back from moving forward in the last 30 years. Thank you very much. Laurie, I'm interested in your view on the question of organising mm. and whether, it, whether the fact that we don't have female communities and we're dispersed in, in households with men and children. No,
2: I mean, that's absolutely part of it. But look, there are... If you look right back through through history and myth, and, and you know, and and the narratives that we've had, you know, throughout you know the history of Western culture is stories about women as the only woman in the group, or women as each other's enemies, and um, and I do think there are. In- In the workplace, as well as in the home, in romantic situations, we are taught that our enemies are other women and our competition is other women. And we need to compete with other women for, for the attention of men, whether that's as potential partners, as bosses, as, you know, if men have power, there is only a certain amount of power allotted to women. Women are meant to fight each other for that power rather than get together to take more of it. And I think getting over that hurdle is incredibly hard, that psychological hurdle. Um, I know that it's, you know, I've seen it happen within the left myself, and that's not, this is not blaming women for that. It's a logical thing to want to do if you've learned from a very young age, that women are your competition, that you shouldn't compete with men. Um, I think the internet is helping, and the fact that we can, te- we can speak to one another directly without those barriers is helping a great deal. And, um, but I think it will take time for women to realise that, that there has to be that solidarity, and, and we can now organise without you know, necessarily res- being restricted within individual... But also when women organise, that organisation is trivialised. You know, the gossip, rumour networks, you know, and a lot of the organising women do is, uh, is dismissed. And I think we shouldn't discount the, the work that has already been done in that way.
4: Well, I, I come from a women-only college in mm. Cambridge, and I have to say that the main reason, it seems to me, that that, that apparent anachronism is... Sp- has still got something going for it is because you get a critical mass of women who are working together. Uh, They're not dispersed. And, you know, for me, uh, working in a university that certainly when I went there and still is to some extent, was overwhelmingly blokish to have a community which was a women's community, um, it wasn't so much that it was a refuge, it was a strength. Should we be thinking about more female-only spaces? Well, I have to say that. It would be insincere of me to say, I come from a women's college, I think it's a great idea, but I don't believe in women-only spaces, because obviously I do. But it, there is a kind of paradox here, because you know, by and large, if you find a place with a lot of women in, it has no power. You know, if, you want to, if you want to search out where power isn't, Go for where the women are. And in some ways, you know, you can do that in jobs or whatever, you know. Um, but in some ways, my experience in, um, you know, in an organisation that has been run by and for women and women only has been empowering you know and it's you know my college is not a place where frail wallflowers go in order to be protected from men it's a place where you go to get the strength of the critical mass of women it's very important
5: i think that there has to be something there we don't seem to we don't have power and we don't really seem to want power sometimes. No, we you know, something that really, really surprises me is that we are a majority, but if you really want to think critically about it, we tend to behave as a minority. So even when we could change things and, and look at how we are organizing, you know, all these movements and me too and all that, it's almost like a real work. <laughs> we could be doing much more with we could be going for that political power changing things as women. And we don't seem to want to do that and that is something that always puzzles me as to why we are not asking for more in, change, in terms of actual change of specific policies that's that all women want, and women seem well, to, we to be are, getting there. I think. When we ask
2: for it, we're called crazy and yes, shut down, no. and attacked. No, 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 we we're more too. than 50 percent. Yeah, we, no, we, we, we women be have been that. asking for these things for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. But the women, yes, They're we have. The yes, we have. I'm sorry. And when we do, we are called crazy. We're shut no, down. We're called Like ter- right now, today I mean, in Egypt, no. a woman who just called out sexual harassment has been arrested for, you know, threatening to overthrow the government because it is a threat. I'm sorry. When women turn around and try and do this, we 50 percent. Yes. And, and that's why it's like there is this campaign to stop us. When we try and talk, we are shut down. And it. it's not just because we're weak or we don't right. want it.
4: Yeah. And it, it happens to, you know, to people who apparently have power. You know, so you know, no bloke my age, saying the kind of things I do, would be talked about like that eccentric Cambridge professor with that long hair, you know, <laughs> who doesn't dye it, right? You know, they, well, they do
2: just, they all dye their hair in they, they're, No,
4: they're allowed to be kind of craggy. And so, you know, and, and in some ways, it's a kind of joke. Um, but in another way, what it's doing is undermining your right to be taken seriously. You know, that, you know, that madwoman who teaches the Romans doesn't brush her hair and, you know, uh, wears slightly odd clothes and always has sparkly trainers on. That is a way of saying we don't need to listen to her, actually.
3: Okay, I'm going to ask each of the panellists to say one thing that you would like the audience to consider as an action or uh, as, a, as a change that we should go away from here mindful of. One thing that people can do that will make a difference. So,
4: Mary. Oh, I think every time... You hear somebody use those words that don't look gendered but are, you just call them out. You know, when somebody says, that's an ambitious woman, and scowls slightly, you say, great, you know, (laughs) I'm pleased. And, you know, you can do that for a whole lot of other words, like whining, screeching, um, you know, any number of those things which go on inside our head. Just look. I mean, what we've got to do is face this. And I think, you know, as I say, this is the academic speaking. If you face it, you're half the way to doing something about it.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Okay.
4: Uh,
2: Laurie. I, I would like the men in the room to uh, consider, to, to sit and make time to sit with their own discomfort at what is happening right now and um, and not run from it. And uh, no, no, I'm not, I'm being very serious here. To sit with your own discomfort at what's happening now, own it, and, and, and work out how to try to make a better world because that is what we all want. And I would like the women in the room to maybe possibly try and make like a private vow to not compete only with other women and to support one another and be in solidarity. Thank you.
4: You're allowed to dislike them too. Yeah you, you can, can dislike them. them. Dislike them. Dislike them. Dislike you're you're you to can dislike, dislike them, them. and just stand yeah. up for each
5: other. Just <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Miriam. Well I would like everybody to pay much more attention to the kind of language that we use because that really has a big influence on, on both boys and girls, and and the next generation, I think that it's so easy to change that. It only requires us thinking a little bit more. And if I can give you a practical ask, you would make me really, really happy if nobody in this room ever again says the really horrendous face of who wears the trousers in this panel. (laughs)
3: I'm afraid we are out of time. Thank you. You've been a brilliant audience. And a round of applause, please, for my speakers. Thank you
0: so
4: much.